Yeah, hey, we're, we're happy to be talking to you yet again, Leora Love, said Cars. Um, you're like one of my favorite people, and so welcome well, to you. On the Menu. Uh, Thanks listeners. for having me. Oh, yeah, well, Leora is like, ever, you name it, he's a chef. Uh, he's traveled the world. He's had many different experiences, and he has this wonderful shop called La Boite in Manhattan, who, um, and every chef who really wants to, to deal with seasoning and, and spicing or anything uh, goes to Lior. Um, you've done, how old is that shop, Lior? So we've expanded beyond the shop. I mean, I did open a store in 2010, but uh, now we have a few other uh, production locations. So at La Boite today is a nationwide um, specialty spice and ingredient company uh, that, uh, you know, is all over uh, the country and even a little bit of export. Right. Well, the book we're going to be talking about, it's right on trend because everybody's interested in spices these days. But the title of the book is A Middle Eastern Pantry, subtitled Essential Ingredients for Classic and Contemporary Recipes. Um, did you do endless research on this? I mean, it's such a, a jam-packed, fact-packed book. Yes, I mean, the book is, uh, it's not uh, necessarily a spice book. There is a chapter about spices, but this book is really dedicated to, um, A, the Middle East and, and the cuisines and the people and the ingredients, and second to uh, the notion of a pantry, how pantry items are being prepared, uh, dried, and, and who are the people behind it, the growers, the farmers, and the makers. Uh, so right. it did require quite a bit of, of research and, and studies. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you, you, you don't just deal with spices. I misspoke on that because I remember when I was reading it that I came to um, things that didn't fit in that category at all, such as flowers and what well, that could be, um, seeds. Um, this, I mean, how did you organize this book? So the book is uh, divided into 14 chapters. Uh, some of them are a single subject chapter, such as olives or chickpeas uh, or legumes, and, um, and some of them are a category, such as molasses or, um, or pickles. Uh, the idea was to go into the pantry and, and see what's in there. And so there's jarred products, pickles, ferments, dried items, and see... Um, you know, what category they, they belong to. And obviously this thing, again, as I said, like olives and sesame, who just had so much to say about that we devoted a whole chapter just to them. And then in and each grand. and every chapter, there is uh, the story about the category or the ingredient and how in different areas of the Middle East it's being prepared and used, followed by anywhere between six to eight different recipes using that uh, ingredient from that particular category. Well, I have two issues to bring up over the latest um, statement you made. Um, the one is um, the recipes themselves, are they traditional, uh, updated, uh, yours? 
tell us about the recipes you include. So the um, recipes are inspired by traditional ones. Um, okay. They're not exactly 100% the way that they're prepared, and we do want to be very respectful to the original recipes. They are adapted by myself and my team to fit both ingredients that are maybe less available uh, here in the U.S. or around the world, uh, but also put in a little spin or twist of our own on these classic recipes, again, with the utmost respect for the uh, original and traditional recipe. Now, um, we just interviewed you, somebody about, um, she wrote a whole book on pistachios uh, and an interwove uh, history. Now, you do storytelling with your um, ingredients, and you, you do integrate with um, the background with history, that sort of thing. Um, but there's there's so much to say about each one of these. How did you approach it? Uh, there was a lot to say, and obviously we have a limit in terms of how many pages can be in the book. It's not endless. Um, so the, the decision was based on the diversity uh, and, and also simply my liking and not liking. You know, I have my, my favorites and certain things I felt maybe a bit less connected. Um, so that's kind of how the decision was made. Well, you know, there's a personal characteristic to your choice, I think. Uh, not many books, and we get many, many, many books, not many books would include a recipe for toasted frica and vermicelli with eggplant. <laughs> Yeah, again, uh, some of these recipes are um, our own unique creation utilizing um, pantry items, and some are based on a traditional recipe. So it's a combination of, of both. Yeah, so you put a great deal of work into this book. <laughs> it's amazing, actually. Um, the Tell me, like, our listeners probably don't know about your background. I mean, you have so many things in your background, um, experiences, um, that uh, you were created almost to have a world view of, of this Middle Eastern pantry. Tell our listeners about some of this. Yeah, you know, I am from the Middle East, so I'm very connected to the region and the cuisine, and so that was an easy uh, connection. I have been cooking for over 30 years professionally in different countries and in different uh, places. So I think that the combination of both my my upbringing in the Middle East and my love for food and, and being involved in the industry for so many years um, plus my, my big passion for just pantry items in general uh, led to coming up with this book. And I think I was able to bring all of these influences and things into this uh, one book. Now, how did you approach the, the stories behind these ingredients? Because 
some of them are very, very complex and multidimensional. And what perspective did you bring to them to sort through which ones you would include? Yeah, so I tried to, if there was a possibility to connect with a person that I know that actually uh, is involved. So as, a, you know, the, the most easiest example was my father, who has an olive orchard and is currently, as we speak, harvesting his olives to make olive oil. So when we write about olives and olive oil, well, telling his story was the easiest. Uh, the same way that we interviewed um, an old school friend of mine who is a beekeeper and hearing his story as somebody who deals with bees and honey and also uh, a sesame and tahina producer. So there are quite a few stories in the book um, that from people who are just close friends of mine and, and that made me very happy that I was able to just reach out to them and hear their uh, personal notes and stories. Now, listeners, I've just mentioned some of the categories in this, but I thought I'd run through them for you just to get an idea of the scope of this book and how it captures the, the flavors and the stories in, in Middle Eastern cuisine. Uh, we start spices, condiments, pickles, olives, nuts, sesame, dried fruit, molasses, flowers, honey, grains, legumes, dairy, and then you do even meat and fish. That's a lot of ground to, cap- to, to uh, cover. Yep. How did you do that? <laughs> well, it's also important to point out that this book is a, is a teamwork of, of a lot of people anywhere from Emily Stevenson, who wrote the book with me, and Dan Peretz, who did the amazing photography, and Helen Park, who is uh, our culinary director, and, and, uh, and, and a lot of other people that without their contribution, this book would never uh, come to life. So I yeah, you mentioned the photography, which is exceptional. Yeah, so, you know, visuals do matter, and uh, I have known Dan Peretz and his work for many years, and this was a perfect opportunity, him uh, living in Israel and being able to capture a lot of the subjects, and and when I say subject, it's the vegetation and the fruits at their peak season, even while I was here in New York, so it ended up working perfectly. I mean, you you tackle some rather... Uh, tricky questions like I'm looking right here at the beginning of the book you say and I guess maybe our listeners would like to know your opinion on what makes a pantry item yeah I mean to me you know a lot of people use the term pantry which basically relates to probably um a cupboard or a drawer in their kitchen with like maybe oil and some spices. I think that um, uh, somebody who grew up, you know, with a pantry uh, back in Israel, but even in Europe, uh, and somebody who now in New York, I mean, I try to maintain a really well-stocked pantry with vinegars and oils and cans and jarred products. Um, to me, a pantry item is something that is uh, preserved in, in a certain way to be used later on. 
of so whether it is extracted, fermented, pickled, canned, uh, cooked. It's basically uh, anything that's a shelf-stable item um, that you can uh, cook with. To me, that kind of falls into that country category. And, and you actually go into a detailed explanations of the preservation uh, methods, the processes themselves, which um, it, it, have you noticed how interested everybody is uh, in fermenting, for example, today? As, as, age, as old age as, as that process is, there's this renewed interest in it, which you, yeah, you think, think wouldn't be. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of interest um, in many older cooking techniques. I think that, uh, to me, it's part of a the will to, you know, cook in a, in a simpler way, eat more clean, uh, without a lot of processed food. And so when we as, as cooks uh, were trying to look in these things, we discover very old uh, methods of cooking and preserving and, and fermenting just being one of them, uh, which has health benefits, also great flavor benefits, and also can make use of a lot of byproducts or, or products who are less noble, let's put it that way, and as part of the, the uh, carbon footprint and, and you know zero waste approach, uh, fermentation falls perfectly into that. Well, you know, I mean, I'm trying to remember if you refer to this as a reference book, but I view it as a reference book. Um, I mean, you you can read through it, but I think it's the kind of thing that you want to pause and and check out certain things through it. Um, I mean, I, I, I put Zatar on just about everything. But, you know, I, I'm not really clear of, of what, I mean, a spice company I interviewed not too long ago um, has a zatar that's supposed to be the most authentic. But my idea is that everybody does it differently. What do you say? Yeah, I think that a lot of blends and zatar being one of them, there are as many uh, varieties of variations as there are people who make it. Um, the same with Dukkha. The same is with Dukkha and the same with, with any blends, such as curry blends and rubs. And so oh, yeah. everybody has their little spin on it, whether it's the um, ingredients, whether it's just the ratio, whether it's the grinding degree. I think that to me personally, Zatar should have at least three things, which is Zatar leaves, sesame, and sumac. And then after that, uh, you're on your own. I mean, if you want to add salt, some people will add thyme or rosemary or even oregano. I mean, as long as it's good, I don't care how you do it. Uh, but I think that it needs to me, for me at least, to have the za'atar leaves and the sesame and the sumac in it. And you have a whole chapter here, uh, which I think the people are going to really jump on with enthusiasm, called Make Your Own Spirit. Spice blends. I mean, we we have not been really promoting that for for a very long time. All of a sudden, now everybody's interested in creating spice blends, also in collaborations, which is a different side of the same thing. 
Uh, do you think we're in, in, uh, kind of a uh, trend with that as what? I think, again, with a lot of uh, items in the kitchen, people would want to make their own or at least try to make their own. Uh, and I think spices fall into that category. So uh, we did it for a few reasons. One is, yes, of course, if you wanted to try your hand on making your own blends, absolutely. I think also it's giving people transparency to how these, what these, these things include and how they're being made. So even if you choose, you know, not necessarily to make your Baharat or Hawaii Drazatar, at least you know what's in them and kind of what's the process of doing them. There, there were a lot of things in, in the book that I think people maybe know about or have heard about, but they've really not actually experienced um, the why or how. I mean, I'm thinking of like tomato paste. I mean, my, my ancestors made their own tomato paste, but not that many people past that generation ever had to do anything like that. Yeah, again, it's, it's not necessarily about you going to make it because some of these require a little bit of time. Uh, it's understanding how it's being made and what are the ingredients and learning about all of that process. You know, you... I've been doing this for quite a long time, and you still manage to come up with things I never even heard of. And, and I'm going to stick my neck out and say one of them is amber. What is amber? Amber is um, a sort of a sauce made with, or, or chutney, if you will, made with mango and a little bit of turmeric and some other spices. Uh, where you can simply blend all of them. You could also slightly ferment the mango with the spices and then blend it, and you're really getting this beautiful, thick mango condiment that you can drizzle over meat and fish and vegetables uh, and, and really elevate the flavor. Yeah, you have one recipe here that looks just luscious. It's shrimp and rice with amber. Mushpas Rubian. <laughs> I'm sick of my neck yeah. out there, too. Um, but pickles. People are now interested in pickles, too. And how do these things become trends? I mean, it, it, it seems to be a revival of all the stuff our grandmothers did. Yeah, I think that um, the interest in ethnic food and ethnic cuisine and international food has been growing more and more every year. And to me, it's quite simple. The more we travel, the more we uh, experience these types of foods, we are um, exposed to uh, these things such as sauces and condiments and pickles. They were always around, and I think uh, they're delicious. And I think a lot of... uh, Chefs uh, are putting more and more of these items on their menu, things that they grew up eating at their homes, and uh, are excited to now share it with their uh, clientele. So it, to me, it makes uh, a lot of sense. Well, I mean, the, the photographs are so exceptional in here that they, they make your mouth water just to look at them. Well, we do want to get people excited to cook these things, so it's important. <laughs> I mean, it's exciting. I mean, I kept picking out things that I wanted. Um, but it, it, 
emphasizes that you need an extra effort to, to have a pantry ready to do some of these more experimental issues, off the new, new, new things, old, new old things. Um, I, I was particularly interested, by the way, in your do-it-yourself cured cracked olives. Uh, now, now, let me explain a bit. It's my mother always talked about curing her own olives. So I don't know. I mean, of course, you're in New York, and that's different from other parts. But it's not that easy to find um, the uncured olives. You know. Yeah. Again, this is another example of uh, something that you know a lot of people will most likely not do, just because, as you mentioned, um, sourcing um, fresh olives off the tree is not a very common thing. You could definitely order them on, on you could definitely order them online. So that's how we got them. Um, and again the idea here was really again to explain the process. So when you do and buy a jar or a container of cracked cured olives, just to once you read about it saying, oh you know, I understand how these were made and how long it takes to make them and have a better appreciation of what it takes to make a good cured olive. It doesn't grow in your supermarket or in your store. You know, people <laughs> spend time and, and effort and ingredients to make them. And hopefully one day, you know, whether you live in an area that uh, does have olive trees or if you want to order a bunch on online and try your hand. It's, it's fun to do. And, um, and, and, you know, we've seen more and more enthusiastic home cooks, home chefs who have these projects. It's not just about the making of it. It's the time that it takes. Even after you yeah, make them, you got to wait. And so... Um, yeah, I got hooked on uh, preserved lemons. <laughs> It drove me crazy that I, I had to keep turning the, the jar over and, and wait sure. and wait and wait to get my preserved lemons. Yeah. <laughs> so, but back to the olives. Um, I didn't have your book when I found these olives and brought them to my mother for her to cure them. But we then looked up recipes for curing olives. And all the recipes I found had the cured in lye. You know what I'm saying? Lye, mm -hmm. like caustic. Yeah. You don't yeah. have lye in yours. No. I mean, so you don't really need lye, but we ended up not making them because of the lye. Yeah, so we did we, not include them in the recipe. Well, I mean, you don't have to have that then. Yeah. Correct. Um, but some of the ideas, now, I mean, if, if I'm in the Middle East, am I going to find a whole bunch of stewed olives? Yeah, olives are very, uh, you know, they're found everywhere. Obviously, olive oil is, is in everything. Uh, just olives in different flavors, black or green, uh, whether they're just served at you know, with uh, 
you know, with some drinks or whether they're served as part of some of the appetizer, whether they're integrated into uh, stews, uh, whether they're ground into paste. So a lot of applications to olives, they're everywhere. I think that's one of the ingredients that's found pretty much anywhere across the Middle East, um, unlike some other ones where not necessarily every country uses them. Um, but definitely the region is very rich in history of, of olive uh, agriculture. I've never, I've spent like a lifetime dealing with food. And I've never heard of malab. Why is that? The malab seeds, you mean? Yeah, you have this listed in here under the nuts and seeds. Yeah, so malab is a, the, a pit or a seed of a sour cherry. Uh, the cherry itself is actually not that great, but the pits themselves have a really beautiful, slightly bitter nuttiness. Uh, a bit like an almond, and uh, while ground into powder and incorporated into uh, cakes and crackers, they really add a beautiful, complex flavor to it. Now, I mean, another thing that's, I think, having a heyday is um, dried fruit, which you know, for centuries was what we had in our pantries, I mean, people. And, and all of a sudden, I find it all over the place again. Yeah, again, it's part of what we mentioned earlier, the better and healthier eating habits that we try to have um, on the go as a snack, as a source of energy and fiber. Um, people turn back and say, oh, this, this was already here, was always here. Uh, now it's more about like finding better produced, cleaner produced uh, dried fruits uh, just for snacking or eating as is, but also for cooking, uh, which is a fantastic ingredient uh, that brings texture, but also bring really good uh, natural sweetness without the need of adding any sugar or any other sweeteners. I, I mean, the, some of these, I, I, I've read... I looked at something and saw, and it, it reminded me that I hadn't had any of that particular ingredient for quite a long time. It's, it's funny how things go in and out of the favor like that. Um, it's just yeah, I never see some of these things around. Um, did you discover anything you didn't already know when you were writing this and researching it? Uh, there weren't necessarily things that I didn't know of, but there are definitely some recipes that I've never heard of or, or tasted before, so that was very exciting. And just, you know, the, the stories and the way people use them, so I think that like was what? pretty Give me an example. Uh, there's uh, this fermented yogurt and vegetable uh, powder called Tanjana. We have a recipe on how to make it and also how to use it. Um, so I found it very interesting, the whole fermentation of yogurt and vegetables and then drying it and grinding it into a powder that is then utilized to cook soups. And that so really I thought that was a very interesting technique 
um, and and the flavor is just fantastic, you know, of of that soup afterwards and the powder itself. You know, and every time I see anything about yogurt, um, I used to always make my own yogurt. This was without a yogurt maker, by the way. I mean, I did the thing with the towels on the radiators, you know. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. But um, I, I, it was from um, somebody from Syria, actually. It was somebody who identified as Assyrian, which is another issue, I guess. But um, I had to go to extend a trip in Europe, and I left it with her, who was a neighbor and a friend, and she didn't feed it. And I've never been able to find a culture like it again. It's just, I mean, yeah. it's, it was so particular. You know, it was passed down from generation to generation. I guess we don't live like that anymore. Uh, not really, no. No. So, and the other thing that's been popping up in, in the books I get is the use of flowers. Um, part of that is somebody had to sacrifice somewhere along the line with, with flowers also with, I think, with mushrooms. Uh, somebody had to sacrifice their life to figure out which ones are, are dangerous. <laughs> What can we do about that? Anything? In terms of what? I mean, people um, experiment with that. Who? Somebody was very brave to, to eat the first oyster. Somebody said, but I'm I'm thinking how many people must have died um, from poisoned mushrooms before they figured out which ones were good and which ones weren't. Yeah, I guess, you know, nowadays with technology, there's, you know, uh, better tools to, to test whether something uh, uh, is, you know, lethal or dangerous or poisonous without, you know, you having to take any unnecessary risks. Uh, um, uh, uh, how basically did you envision people to use this book? Uh, first of all, I'd like for people to read the great stories uh, about the people, countries, the ingredients, the makers, the farmers, and really kind of have a, a basic understanding of how much time, effort uh, is being put into making these everyday ingredients that you see in the kitchen, whether it's an olive or a pickle or something like that. And then I really hope to get people excited to start you know, cooking the recipes, bringing these uh, fantastic flavors into their kitchen, trying their hands with more familiar dishes, with maybe less familiar dishes, and really, you know, being able to travel without uh, leaving your kitchen, uh, but just by being inspired by all these uh, great uh, recipes and stories. Well, I think he's done that. I mean, from this person you're talking to, I sure was inspired by this book. Um, do you think that the old foodways are, are really going to survive this, the whole crisis in the Middle East? Yeah, I think, you know, I think uh, that the food uh, is there to stay and the people, and, and obviously we're speaking in very, hard, sad, and challenging times, and, and I hope that uh, 
some sort of a resolution comes up um, as soon as possible. But I think the 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 people and their culture, which means also the food and the ingredients, are rooted uh, so deeply that I think uh, those are here to stay. And I think that uh, part of my commitment and responsibility is to tell the story of these ingredients, these people, and the, the region to get people excited about that fantastic cuisine that I was born into. Yes. Well, now where were you born? In, in Israel. Yeah, I mean, where? where? In the Galilee, Upper Eastern Galilee. Or near the Lebanese frontier. Oh, interesting. So you have that that kind of influence as well. Uh, listeners, this this is really a, a, a marvelous achievement. Um, Leora Lev Serkar, it's beautiful. Um, Thank you very much. He's the founder of La Boite. And if you ever want to, to try out some new combinations of, of blended spices, you get in touch with him. The book is so inspirational, called A Middle Eastern Pantry, and it's going to open avenues of flavor for you, that you, you and also excitement. And the thing I would say overall by this book, first of all, it's very thorough, but secondly, it's also very exciting, Lior. Uh, thank you for the book, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us about it. Thank you very much for having me. Yes. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Listeners, you're in for a real treat. Um, we're going to be talking to Rose Wild. Uh, her book, Bread and Roses, is, is one of those must-have cookbooks, except it's actually a big book, I guess, um, in, in your kitchen. It's absolutely essential. And, and all of you regular listeners know how many cookbooks we go through in any given month in 20 years. Um, but this this is just amazing, Rose. Um, it, it, you make it sound such fun, and you there's so many pictures of you, and you look like you're having such a good time. I bet <laughs> you're fun. <laughs> I am. I'm always having a good time, and I I want people to have a good time in the kitchen. You know, I think that a lot of times we make certain practices uh, scary or unapproachable, and I want it to be super accessible and super joyful for anyone to step into. Um, and you're right, it has a lot of baking, but it also has some cooking, so it's, all kinds are welcome at the table. Yeah, well, the, the illustrations are wonderful, and the photographs, the photography is just brilliant. And, um, yeah, Rebecca Stomp did a beautiful job on the photography. I'm very grateful to her. She's a dear friend and a talented Oh, artist. it's. I, mean, I I would love to have one of every single thing in your book. <laughs> 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 um, to begin with, um, why don't you just sort of refresh the question that you you transit? You introduced the book on with a question called "Why Whole Grains." Can you kind of 
summarize that briefly for the listeners? Because I guess yeah. you know everybody's used to the same old flowers, but why whole grains? Why is this important? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess that's my whole, like, thesis, right? Why whole yeah. grains? We must. Um, you know, I think that uh, cooking and baking, like, the great connector for me is the doughs, right? And they're about 80%, like, just, you know, white flour, just structure, no flavor. And um, as a chef and as a cook, like, uh, you know, we want flavor. So that is just, like, a blue ocean to jump in and I, I think it's, it's so accessible and really calls you to like change that so um, I really advocate mostly for more flavor and more richness and more nutrition in your life and if you can have more why wouldn't you um, so I like to think that um, introducing whole grains into your life is like you know, when you were younger and you were first you know starting to eat more greens and the only one you knew was Broccoli, <laughs> and then suddenly you just you know you suddenly you discovered like there was such a thing as green beans, and there was also like radicchio, and you know they're all sort of similar, but they're different, and they have different flavor like impacts and different preparations you can do with them, um, and likewise you just don't know the wide 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 world of grains right now, but all of them have incredibly unique properties, texture, flavors, ranging from creamy and buttery to like sour and tannic. Um, and there's just like so much more available to you. So that's why whole grains. Well, I've never seen anything like this flower tasting wheel. How are we going to explain that without having the picture in front of us? <laughs> well, um, this, this flower tasting wheel took a lot of time to develop to try and put into words um, the language of your palate and like how we taste things, different flavors and stuff like that. And I think if anyone has ever um, had wine or been to a wine tasting, you might have seen something uh, simpler and similar um, that just helps guide you to take note of things that are happening in your mouth that you are experiencing. So this flower flavor wheel um, that Stacey Michelson illustrated for me um, really breaks down the different elements of taste to hopefully give you the language as you're trying some of the tests that are also on that page, like the porridge test, the tongue test, and the shortbread test, to give you the language to uh, tell yourself and experience for yourself what you have going on um, with your senses. Um, so this is really like the foundational page, where to start. If you don't know a grain, put it under your tongue. If it's soft, it's pastry. If it's hard, <laughs> it's for bread. You know, make some porridge. See your hydration. Um, and all of this may sound like, uh, you know, like a little foreign, but everything is so easily just experienced. You know, it was really important to me that these skills that are so foundational that we share across culture, um, the love for grains that are shared across culture and different areas of the world was not something that only a few people could do. This is something so many people do, and if you want to, you can too. So my hope is that is the most dog-eared page. It's where everyone goes. It's where I still go when I encounter a new grain. So great for beginners and professionals, I think. Now, you actually um, organize uh, your your book pretty well, sort of like how you organize your life 
<laughs> you traveled around <laughs> everywhere, tasted everything. Um, explain yeah. to our listeners how what how this book is organized. Yeah, um, I love travel and food. I think something we deeply share in common. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this book is really organized by different regions of the world, um, and that is reflective a lot of how just I organize uh, things in my head, as you say, because those are my experiences. But also when I started writing this book in the pandemic, I really wanted to show people um, the beautiful abundance of different areas of the world in a time when it seemed like we, we weren't going to be able to travel and there was just bad news coming out of everywhere in the world. Like it was a really hard time. Oh, isn't it the truth? Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, so as you encounter the chapters, you'll see that they're titled like the Americas, Europe, Africa, Asia, Western Asia, Northern Africa, and I really group them um, by the grains in that area and also the produce in that area and finally the botanicals in that area so that you're really able to deeply dive into a culture and see how rich it is. Because often I think in this conversation of like, Eating locally, we, we're not really sure where things are from, A, but B, it's this idea of scarcity, and I wanted to show just how rich every era of the world was and, like, the native foods that originated there. Um, and my hope is that even if you haven't traveled extensively, you can find your area of the world, no matter where you are in the world with this book, and, and start there and then jump to another area of the world and, and see the connective tissue and, and adventure in that way. Now, another brilliant chart is your flower families of the field. And, and uh, listeners, the different kinds of, um, of grains, but also note the date. And the date apparently is when they were what introduced or that there's evidence that they yeah. existed. What is it? Yeah, the date the dates listed are basically like the best evidence for when we as humans were cultivating them. So, you know, these obviously were around forever. This is just when we figured out <laughs> how yeah. to use them and, and started talking about it enough that we um, can see it sort of in the archaeological records and anthropological records as well. Um, and I, you know, this chart, it's one of my favorites. First of all, the little botanical drawings that Stacey did to show just how They're different and good, like, yeah. cute they are are so charming. There's also some like really important information like going how far back like we have been tied to baking and like how far back like these grains have existed with us, which is really, I thought, important to express because so much of this whole grain um, movement gets put in the context of a trend, and it couldn't be older. It couldn't, right, it couldn't exactly. have known these trends for a longer time. Um, and this chart actually took me probably about as long to research as, as to write the rest of the book just because I really wanted to make sure that I was getting you know, the origins right and the original grain right before it branched off and, and the dates right. And so many of these dates aren't in the same, like, time format. So I had to do a lot of math as well to yeah. try and make it something that you could just absorb at a, glass, a glance and just see how deeply treasured these grains have been for so long by us. I mean, I, there are things in there. You have so much information in this book. I mean, I never even thought about um, uh, how before um, the 
Greeks did an enclosed oven. Everything was a flatbread. Yeah. <laughs> who, who knew? I mean, I just never thought of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it takes a little like clicking of information in there, and you're like, oh, that makes sense. So flatbreads are like the oldest breads. Every culture has them. There, it seems like a small, narrow category, but there's actually so much in there, um, and they're so forgiving. So if you've never tried bread before, like make some flatbreads and and see what a wizard you are, and how tasty. You know, like what's better than grabbing things, rolling it up in a flatbread, and like eating it, like love. Yeah, I you you have somebody. Um, I don't know what to call them. I mean, just side side ideas about things that were startling to me, like about how the whole the whole field of fermentation has changed. You know, I mean that, that kind of startled me. Yeah. Um, and it might be the right one. I'm trying to remember what I'm most startled by. Uh, there were a number of things here that I was startled by. Um, you well, have I'm techniques. Glad it was an exciting read. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen. Uh, I, I, thanks for mentioning that because I'm going to make a suggestion. Uh, listeners, okay. you're going to want to um, go through this book and, and sort of just get a gist of what it's like, but you're going to have to take your time to slowly read it because it's so packed with information that you don't want to let go and you want to hang on to. Uh, So uh, it's definitely a a keeper book in your kitchen. Um, I mean, there's there's so much. I I look here, what water temperature do I want? I mean, whoever thought about that? (laughs) I didn't even think about it. Um, well, I think if you get really deep into bread making, you'll come across these things. But a lot of the movement has been to like make it really precise and, you know, all about numbers. And I think it's incredible that we know that science now and we have the equations. Um, but sometimes, like, not everyone's brain works that way. And so I, I wanted to highlight that, but also pair it with that sensory approach because this practice has always been about apprenticeship, baking, and, and most things, you know, like it's incredible that we can explain things, but oftentimes when we can explain them, we forget that they are magic still. Um, mm-hmm. And my hope is to just like make that magic so accessible for everyone through their direct experience. Yeah, well, I mean, there are so many things. I mean, you talk about um, the weather. I mean, people don't really <laughs> focus on that. Um, but yeah, I can tell you. Variable. Oh yeah, I mean, it has, uh, just an example. Peter's heard a million times is um, when we lived in Australia, I made pavlova all the time. Mm, and, um, a classic dessert. Oh yeah, but you know, um, using the same recipe, I in the U.S., even my Australian friend whose recipe it was had trouble with my oven. In our climate, and with the, uh, it would have to be also the, um, uh, the the moisture in there, the uh, humidity. Yeah. Because moisture, I mean, the, altitude, so much. Oh yeah, and then and she fiddled with a wooden spoon in my oven door to get this thing <laughs> to come out right. <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> you know, there's always a solution, you know. If you know the variables, you can, you can solve things. Yeah, well, I can tell you without that help, I mean, I, I've served pavlova after cooking it many, many times. I served it in Pittsburgh on the dessert at lunchtime, and, and one of the guests said it was the only time where she needed to use a fork and a steak knife to cut her dessert. <laughs> now, you, you, you also should, should own up to the fact that you couldn't make Yorkshire pudding either. Oh, Yorkshire pudding is another one. We, Peter decided that it took on the topography of, of where we were living, you know. That is, <laughs> in the, in the, yeah, in the, we're, 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 in Kansas City, it was flat. <laughs> Flat, 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 yeah. Those are, those are really finicky, you know, but I feel like I actually got really good at making Yorkshire puddings because I worked at Rustic Canyon for a long time, and they were on our menu with the Cote de Bouffe. Um, and the key to it is to make it like the day before. Like that batter needs to sit for a right. long time, much like a cannelay, and then you get your form ready and you got a little fat in it and you get it ripping, ripping hot. And um, that whole puff comes just from that intense, like, smack of heat in the oven. Um, but I think above all, it's the resting, which can be hard, you know? Like, it's hard to plan ahead. <laughs> so often when we have food cravings, <laughs> we're like, I want it now. <laughs> now, you, you know you know how, how and why Yorkshire pudding was invented, right? Tell me, Peter. It's very simple. Where, 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 where I grew up in England is north. And okay. An area, a county called Yorkshire. Yeah. Okay. From, people from Yorkshire are legendary for being really cheap. <laughs> okay. So, so, and 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 in in the case of my family and and, and many others. By by the way, the Sunday joint. The roast beef was that was served on Sunday. Also, I had to make the meal on Tuesday or on Monday. Okay. <laughs> that's funny. So, 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 so that's why the prudent Yorkshire chef, when preparing the Sunday menu, took took that in mind and knew exactly what would needed to happen the following day. And, <laughs> and, and, and by, by the way, we'll put a little fat from suet in the mixture as well, just to make sure that yeah. everyone realizes everyone realizes they're not they're not supposed to eat so much of the beef because if you, do, if you eat too much of the beef, there won't be enough to go around on Monday. <laughs> no, no, I, I well, did. The way I to fill want, you up. I did. Want, I did want to make an, another observation, and and I may be. I may be off the mark altogether, but it it seems to me that when I was first in this country in 1972, 1973, every, everybody was in love with what's the what's the sour, sourdough bread. Everyone was in love, yes. in love with sourdough. If if you were going if you were going home from a trip to the west coast, you had to have at least a couple of side sourdoughs in your suitcase. Absolutely. I'm actually, I'm in San Francisco right now, which is like the place you had to get it from. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah, exa- exactly. It was, you, you, you got it from San Francisco. You couldn't get sourdough any other place. 
Yeah, and now it's everywhere. Yeah, but now now you can get it everywhere because we people <laughs> exactly. have realized that the sourdough is not necessarily from San Francisco, but San Francisco happens to have a beautiful weather that the bacteria that makes sourdough possible really, really loves. But in fact, it's everywhere. It's on you right now. It's in the grain. It's in the air. It's in the water. And that it is one of the most hyper-local things you can do from my house to yours. It's going to be different. It's going to be delicious. Um, Like we were saying earlier, fermentation is really just about, like, expressing your local environment as immediately and deliciously as possible. Let's talk a little bit about these recipes. Um, They are um, unusual and very, very exciting to say the very least. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love I mean, to hear that. I, I just, I love just even reading some of the the ingredients of them. I mean, they're just one more fascinating than the other. I mean, how you manage to actually do something interesting with rice pudding? <laughs> you served it with chrysanthemum custard. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and the fried sweet balls. Yes. And, and what it was some of the other really extraordinary uh, recipes you have? I mean, I, there's so many of them. I don't know where to to, to start. Um, but the other part of this book that we have to talk about is how you include um, flowers and and that kind of thing in into all your recipes. And yeah, have, the, the and roses part. <laughs> yeah, that's the roses. Yeah. That's yeah. Um, my approach to cooking is very um, like anything goes, you know. In the book, I try to break it down for people as this philosophy of eating root to blossom, um, yes. which really is just an attempt to tell people that, like, you know, don't forget that the entire plant tastes good like not just the part you're most familiar with. And this can be as commonplace as like only buying the beets but throwing away the greens when those are so delicious, sautéed, add a little like pork fat or some bacon in there and you've got a classic Southern Amer- like South America um, dish, um, meaning like the Southern part of the United States, not South yeah. America. Um, but also, you know, like when a plant bolts, like everything goes to flower. Like I love using arugula blossoms in salads because they're so sharp and they're so beautiful. Yeah, we do that. Um, we, we have those. Yeah. And also chive blossoms are a standard yes, in our salads. Yes. You know, everything, everything that grows has a flower and it's going to be delicate and lovely and there's just so much that you can extract. Um, And I think that we have just like lost some of that culinary knowledge and as a result, we're creating waste that we don't have to. And there's already so much waste inherent in the food system and this is such an easy, joyful, beautiful way that we can gain that back while also making our plates like so much more beautiful, so much more aromatic. Um, And I think I I further advocate that these floral elements and botanical elements, as I refer to them, are not just garnish, but like part of deeply flavoring um, the whole dish. Like there's some really incredible brown rice, chamomile shortbread cookies that I've been seeing a lot of people make recently, and I just love them. It's like a warm hug in the morning. You mentioned the fried rice uh, pudding with the chrysanthemum custard, which just yeah. custard, this incredibly golden color and like 
tannic while also having this deeply honey note. Um, there's so much flavor we're like leaving in the kitchen that could make it to our table. Um, and I think in general, we think of this as something that should be reserved for fine dining in this country. But in most areas of the world, there are days set aside in spring and fall to go into the hills and collect this to forage for free. You know, that's the other great thing is that if you just start taking some walks in nature and I give some basic rules for foraging, you can access so many of these things without having to make it a monetary exchange um, and suddenly have something to look forward to and a dish that can only be had during that time of the year. Um, I think that's really special and something that uh, we, need, we need back on our plates. Yeah, well, the, of course, the foraging, you do have um, um, a whole section of what you have to be careful about in foraging. I mean, I went to a, um, Absolutely. a presentation by a, um, what do you call them, the mushroom wild mushroom hunters and and the mm-hmm. uh, the the speaker actually knowing just about everything you could know and a really expert forager managed to get fooled by a mushroom and get poisoned and she oh, did die but she got I very mean, sick make make sure that you know what's toxic in your area um mushroom foraging especially is like a really, really deep art that I have not committed enough time to. But mostly what we're talking about in this book is foraging for um, plant matter that falls more into categories of like leafy greens and flowers and herbs, which are a lot more easily identifiable because the kingdom of that plant is not like so robust and so similar with so many lookalikes. Um, and, you know, I give some rules, too, that are not just about protecting you, but protecting the land and the community and making sure that you're allowing for regenerative processes. So all of the book, I think, essentially, even though it has many different themes, are centered on you feeling more connected to the people around you and where you live uh, and your seasons. Right. Um w- w- you say that you've collected a lot of these recipes, but, I mean, it seems to me that you've jazzed up a whole bunch of different ones. <laughs> I mean, it, they're very inventive, and I, I'm not sure you actually found them being executed in places. How much of this did you make up? <laughs> oh, um, all of it. All of it is from my own brain. Um, you know, I think when I say they are collected, it means that I am taking them from the last 12 to 15 years working in food professionally, and they are recipes that I have executed at different restaurants that I've had to create for the menu. Um, and because my viewpoint is heavily inspired by botanicals and whole grains, like I think it has all always been very new. Um, but a lot of it is coming from foundational things. Like I'm not inventing rice pudding, but I did notice that a lot of Italian food has savory arancini balls, and why couldn't I make that sweet right. and have it like a drop rice pudding donut? So. I think that I'm pretty irreverent when it comes to a lot of rules, but oh yes, I think you're I've irreverent too. <laughs> yeah, but because I think I've you're quite irreverent. Them, like, I have, 
I have such an honor for, for knowledge and knowing what's been done before, and I like to see and compare multiple recipes and see what's, what's a hard line, what's a soft line, and what I can bend, what I can change, and then I create something new. So um, all of these recipes, some form of them, were in a binder that I created for a restaurant while I was, that was my tenure there running the bread and pastry programs for many restaurants throughout Los Angeles. Um, and... A few of them I invented brand new for the parameters of the book in order to flesh out different sections. Um, Did you actually make these cakes and then stick flowers with the stem and all into the cake to decorate it? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They're They're all edible florals. Nothing is toxic. You know, another thing I think that may come as a surprise to people when they see some of these flowers is that often when we, like, ask research, like, are things toxic or edible, we are getting a very narrow lens of what this country defines as toxic Mm -hmm. or edible, and that if we open that to a global lens, there's actually so much more because food has been political for a long time, and often opinions about it have nothing to do with the food itself, but a story someone else wanted to tell. So, you know, you'll find tulips in there, which are eaten in Europe quite often. They're incredibly Yeah, I was surprised that they weren't poisonous tulips. Yeah, nope. Tulips have been eaten for a long time. Without tulip bulbs, it would have been really hard for the French to get to through World War II when food was scarce. Really? Um, so there's a lot of deep history. They, they look like they'd be poisonous. I don't know why I would think that, but Well, they're not, I assure you. I do think there is a personal journey to be found between um, edible and palatable, right? Because what's palatable to me is going to be different from what's palatable to you. And taste is so culturally based, like personal history based, that like we can never have the same experience. But I can try to make sure it's delicious. I just can't guarantee when you eat it what memory is going to come to mind in your beautiful, unique brain. Now, what are you going to do about kale? What am I going to do about kale? (laughs) What to do about kale? What a bad boy. I think kale's doing great on its own, but my personal, like, favorite way to enjoy kale is, like, chiffonade, really thin, massaged with lemon juice, allowed to sit so some of the structure breaks down, and then tossed with, like, uh, sunflower seeds, sesame seeds, a little salt, and, like, any fresh fruit, like stone fruit or apple. Really? A little sweetness. Yeah, that's my go-to move. I'll tell you, kale needs a lot of help. Well, I, I, listeners, if, if you really want to see how exciting these recipes are, I just opened the book to this one, Einkorn Olive Oil Cake with Roasted Quince in Rosehip Custard, Poppy Seed Cream, Pistachio Buttercream, and Pistachio Grass. I don't even know what that is. Oh, that's a really beautiful one. That's one of my favorites. Oh, I think this is one I would be tempted to make. I'd be tempted to make this. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually perfect for the fall right now because quince is in season. Quince is the ancestral fruit to um, pear and apples. So it requires a little more work, but mostly it's inactive. You know, you're putting it in the oven, you're letting it roast till it goes from white to like deep coral. 
Um, and then the rose hip custard, roses and pistachios are really And that's the one today. where you stick the whole stem of the rose and use different kinds of roses, no less. <laughs> yes, really... that's true. That's true. It looks like a flower firecrackers, right? How joyful. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I've been raised. I want to hear you belly laugh. <laughs> Honestly, this... Uh, I, I really can't tell you, because right, I have to tell you how exciting this whole book is. Uh, again, listeners, it's uh, Rose Wild is, is the uh, chef um, and, and, and pastry chef, and, and you're also a lawyer, right? A formerly a lawyer, recovering, <laughs> I suppose, is how they like to call it, yeah. So there's a certain logic that, that's applied to these recipes. Um, but oh the, yeah, the, absolutely. Yeah, I mean you can. They're forward and they're and they're little tips to help you along. Uh, it's it's really an adventure, a very exciting cookbook called Bread and Roses, um, and and I love the Art Nouveau lettering on your cover as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. My designer Ali Chi did a really beautiful job with the cover, and I, I love the typeface. I believe it's called New Forest. Well, I could tell you this much. This is. This is a book that I'm going to actually use <laughs> to try to do this. Just watch out, Rabbit. You're going to find out some adventure in your desert. It means a lot desert. to me. There's a, there's a sentence in the introduction that says, make the recipes stain this book. And I, I really hope people exactly. take it to heart. I noticed that because, um, you know, when I got married and they had all these showers and people, you've, it's become such a big business and everything, although we've been married for over <laughs> 50 years. But, but at any rate, one of my most prized uh, gifts at my, my shower, bridal shower, was one of my best girlfriends gave me a book that she had used and was filled with stains. And she uh. said... What, and then she wrote a description about, you know, with every stain, you'll think of me. Oh, that's <laughs> and so then sweet. And then it broke my heart. So anyhow. Oh, that's such okay. a beautiful gift. What, oh, what a better, like, endorsement of recipes than tons of greasy fingerprints oh, yeah. and bits of dough, you know? It means it's used. It's loved. And that's, that's, that's my greatest hope. Well, it's a beautiful book. You've done a great job. And um, I thank you for talking to us. Thank you. I've had such a good time. This was a thrill. <laughs> thank you. Okay, bye-bye, Rose. Have a great day. Bye. bye.